That was awesome, guys. Thank you so much for worship. That was an emotional song, man. I almost started crying. I'm serious. <laughs> Planet Wisdom was this weekend. If you don't know what that is, we went to a conference this uh, last Friday and Saturday, and it was great. But the best thing about it, and I didn't ask permission to say this, but I'll say it anyway. The best thing about it was one of our, our students uh, prayed to receive Christ, and that was incredible. And, uh, and I'll just point her out real quick. I don't know where Amber is located right now. Amber, she's over here, probably embarrassed right now. I apologize, but um, there ain't nothing embarrassing about Jesus, all right? So uh, really, really cool, and just it's amazing to me when, when, when you guys get it and when you realize my, my life's going this direction and I want to follow Christ and and you decide to surrender your life to him. And so, um, and so that's just incredible. And I, I love the, every moment of yesterday and just getting to talk with her about that. So um, we're in Proverbs still. And we'll be there for a while. So just get used to me saying that every Sunday. But turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. And there's a key verse that I bring up every week. You guys know the reference of that verse? Proverbs chapter 1, verse what? Seven. Seven. Got it. So go to the next slide, and we will read that together as a group, because I want to get, make sure this verse gets just stuck in your brain where you can't get it out of your head, even if you were to try. So not that you should try that, but uh, so everyone read this with us. Uh, chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the be With me, with me. Here we go. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I keep setting up each week with that verse because I want you to make sure you understand that Proverbs is not just about behavior change. It's about heart change. And this fear of God takes place within the heart. And so as we unpack each chapter, it's going to look like I'm talking about just behavior. Hey, do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. So it can appear that way, but if you link everything back into this verse, you realize, no, Actions flow from the heart. And so this verse, I think, is the key verse for the whole book. And if you put everything in context with that verse, it'll all make more sense to you. And you'll understand that heart change is the most important thing. And from that flows behavior change. And so today, here's the review of the last few weeks. In chapter 5 of Proverbs, Solomon is talking to his son And in chapter 5, he talks about sexuality. We discussed this like three weeks ago. Remember that talk? The one where I yelled at you for like a half hour. Remember that talk? Yeah. Uh, And so then he goes from sexuality um, into laziness, which seemed totally, it's just kind of a weird list. It's like, let's talk about girls. Let's talk about your work ethic, right? They don't seem to really tie together. But then in this part of chapter 6, It's like he comes back to his son and grabs him by the scruff of the neck and says, now about sexuality again, all right? It's like he's saying, okay, I'm not quite sure you got it the first time, and this issue is so, so, so important that I will go over this again with you. And my first thought was, I'm not going to talk about sexuality. Can we discuss that? I used all my bullets last time, right? I can't, what else can I say about sexuality? And so... I started reading the chapter, though, and started thinking, you know what? If Solomon covers it a second time, then I'm going to cover it a second time. And so this is like sexuality part two. And and so what I try to do, though, as your pastor is I try to anticipate 
questions that you might have. So I read over my notes from the last time we talked about sexuality, and I thought, okay, I know we came across really strong and intense about that topic, and that was a good thing I felt like. But also understand that whenever we address certain issues, that it might raise certain questions in your mind about those issues that we didn't address last time. And so my attempt today is to kind of get a little bit deeper and, and unpack some of the issues that might be swirling around in your minds about the issues we discussed three weeks ago. And so one of the questions I want to answer just out of the gate is this. Is it wrong that I have relational, emotional, and sexual desire? And just cut right into this question because I know that, that as a church and as a, as a person who is a parent of, of a four-year-old and a, and a two-year-old, I know that as parents and as, as pastors, we can come across like we're saying that, you know, how dare you like girls? Or how dare you like guys? What is wrong with you? You people are so, you're so sinful, right? It can come across that way. And so this is my attempt to kind of reel it back in a bit and say, okay, let's talk about just the real issues there. Is it wrong to have these desires? And of course, the simple answer is, of course not. It's not wrong for you to crave relationship with the opposite sex. I mean, for some reason in the church, it comes across, it's almost like we we preach sometimes as if God created everything, and then somehow like Satan invented sexuality, right? Like he showed up and he was like, well, God was resting on the seventh day. When God wasn't looking, Satan was like, all right, we're going to create something really crazy, Right? And it's called sexuality, right? And so it can come across that way if you're, if, you're, if you're a pastor or if you're someone who's in the church for a while. It can come across like we're saying, this is bad, this is evil, this is horrible. And so I want to just let you have permission this morning that it's not wrong, obviously, that you desire relationship with the opposite sex on every level, right? And, and so, but what I want to do this morning is give you just a really quick brief history of dating. Because if you don't know this, dating is a really, really recent thing, right? There wasn't a day back in Bible times where you showed up on your, you know, tricked out camel and, and, and showed up to the, guy, the girl's house and were like, all right, we're going to go see a, a movie, right? That just didn't happen back then. So um, dating was not even an issue. It wasn't even really an option. Basically, um, the way it worked was there was a family over here and a family over here, and they probably were cousins. And mom and dad would say, well, we know them because they're family. And, uh, and you're going to, our, our son, we're going to betroth you to their daughter, and you're going to be married. There was no choice in the matter for, for the kids, right? And so this is the way it would go down. And so there was never really a time where you got to really choose for yourself or, or choose who you were going to be with. And then secondly, here's the other part that's kind of weird about that. This often would happen at a very early age. Not just the betrothal, but the actual wedding, the marriage. And we're talking 15, 16 years old. Okay? Can you guys imagine this playing out in today's culture? Like you actually getting married at the age of 15 years old? This, this would, I know, freak you out. This whole idea would freak you out right now. And so this is the way it would typically go down. So if you look at the Bible, very often they don't even really talk about premarital sex. It's mainly focused on adultery because here's what would happen. 
A young person's biggest temptation would probably be adultery because many of them were already married. And so premarital sex may not really even be addressed as much in Scripture because there weren't a whole lot of people dating back then, okay? And so their biggest temptation might be adultery, not so much sex before marriage. Now, what I want to show you this morning is I think many of you have this idea that it's somehow God's fault. Like you're 15 years old, you're 16 years old, you feel like you're ready for a relationship on all the levels, sexuality, emotional, relational, all those things coalesce, and you feel like I'm ready for this, and God's holding out on me. And and you start to see it is God's fault. It's God's fault that you can't be in a relationship right now, that you can't get married right now. But I want to remind you that it's really culture that's changed in the last, last few hundred years, right? It, culture has made it to where it's really difficult for you guys to get married at an early age. And it's because it requires a lot for you to be able to provide for a family. You've got to get a lot of education today to provide for yourself, provide for a wife and some kids. And so because of that, I mean, way back when, it was like everyone farmed, right? I mean, if you could plant carrots and build a mud hut, you were like good to go, right? And that's, that's how, that was your skill set that you needed to get married, right? And so, but now that, because we have things like this that require great education for someone to make, and if you can't produce and you can't get an education, you can't provide, then you've got to wait a long time to get married, and so now the average age is like, I think, 25 for girls and 27 for men. And I know I just depressed everybody in the room when I said that, right? And so everything has changed dramatically. And so I'm not saying, just hear me on this, I'm not saying that you should be married in your teens. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that I think God's initial intent was for people to get married at a fairly early age. But culture has changed things to the point where that's pretty much impossible today. So now there is this 10, 15-year gap of time from the time that you feel like you're ready for a relationship to the time that you actually can be in a relationship. And that 10-year gap of time for many of you is also known as sheer hell, right? And so it creates this weird thing that God never intended. And so my point today is not to say, hey, y'all should all be in relationships. Y'all should all go find a girlfriend or boyfriend because you're ready. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying that if you're going to blame someone for this 10-year gap that we're talking about, blame culture. Don't blame it on God because that was not his initial intent. Now, the second question I want to raise for you is this. What is the difference between sinful lust and simply acknowledging someone's beauty? Now, before we get into this question, I want you guys to answer your questions at your tables. So go through questions one through three together, and we'll reconvene here in a minute. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, I would love to know, we'll do a quick raising of the hand survey. I would love to know how many of you said you would prefer the prearranged marriage at 15. Raise your hand. 
<laughs> Notice it's all guys. And then I'm guessing everyone else said you would like the marriage at 30 that of your choosing. So raise your hand, make this official. If you said marriage at 30, 30, 30 years, 30 years old. That's a long time. It's a long time. Okay, so what if, what if, I'll back up a little bit. What, listen up. What if your parents said, okay, pre-range marriage at 15, but you get to sign off on it? Right? I mean, I don't think it happened back then where the guy was like, really, dad, her? I hate her. I mean, he's wanting the thing to succeed, right? So he's, you know, I think there was probably some input there. So, so, so the numbers go up if I say, you get to sign off on it, right? Okay, all right. All right, cool. All right, so um, I just wanted to see where you stood on that. So, so turn, to chap- turn to chapter 6, verse 20, and we're going to wind sprint through part of this because, as always, we go over time every Sunday. So look at chapter 6, verse 20, and here's what Solomon says. He says, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. So now now mama's coming into this, right? Now mama's laying down the smack down on on this topic. So forsake not your mother's teaching, bind them on your heart always, and tie them around your neck. So he's not literally saying tie a Bible around your neck and walk around with looking like, uh, what's that dude, Flavor Flav, with the clock. Um, he's, not, he's not condoning that so much. He's basically saying these, these pieces of wisdom should become a part of you. He says, he says in verse 22, he says, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. And so he's saying that, that wisdom almost becomes like this little imaginary friend, right? That it kind of wakes up with you and, and, and you have an idea of, hey, I think it'd be really cool if I, you know, fill in the blank. And this little imaginary friend is basically saying, like, you're an idiot. And you need to get wisdom and so stop being such an idiot. So wisdom becomes like this imaginary friend that, that basically helps you discern right and wrong. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, he says, For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. What he's saying here is that wisdom is not a hindrance to freedom. You get that? Wisdom is not a hindrance to freedom, but it actually helps you be free. It, it actually aids in your freedom. It's not a hindrance to freedom. Look at verse 24. To preserve you from the evil woman from yes notice he has said twice now that women are evil in this book Um, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress verse 25 do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes wow so so just listen to this for a moment if you're a real concrete, listen up, if you're a real concrete, literal thinker, he's not saying 
literally capture you with her eyelashes like a Venus flytrap. He's not saying that. He is saying, figuratively speaking, that the eyelashes might lure you in. Every guy in here knows about the eyelashes, right? Every guy knows the power of the eyes, knows the power of the look, right? So I know this might, listen up, I know this might sound weird, but just listen to me on this. But there was a day where women would take colors and they would put them on their, their eyes. There was a day where this actually happened, right? And, and they would literally paint their eyes and, and, and they would do it to, to lure in a guy, okay? Because, because everybody has seen a woman before she has eye makeup on versus after she has eye makeup on, right? Before she has eye makeup on, you're more like, ah! After she has eye makeup on, it's more like, whoa. Right? It looks totally different. Totally different, right? And so they would do this. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying here at all that eye makeup is wrong or sinful or that it's seductive. But, but back then, it was considered like a seductive move, Right? It was considered a seductive move to wear eye makeup back then. And, and so, um, now today, we still need to talk about modesty briefly, but, but today, the seductive move is simple. It's, it's small shirts and small skirts, right? That's what it is. And so, for you girls, do you ever wear something, ladies, that in the back of your mind, you're thinking, this is going to get him. This will get him, right? Do you ever have that in the back? I'm not saying that you're admitting it to yourself, because, you know... That would require some humility. But, um, but you ever think in the back of your mind, like, this, this is going to get that guy. This is going to make him think about me, right? And so this is kind of what these ladies were doing. Now, I want to remind you, the first time we discussed sexuality, we defined lust this way. When I say lust, most people think that's a guy's issue. Girls struggle with gossip, and the issue with that is that it's wrong. It's not even the truth. Girls still struggle with lust in different ways. So guys' lust is more outward. Guys see something and go, that's beautiful, I want that. Girls want to be the thing that they want. It's a reversal of lust. Girls have an inward kind of lust that says, I want to be desired like that. That's the girl's version of lust. And it's still lust, just the same. It's just a different, different side of the equation. So look up back up at verse 25. Where he makes this statement, it's really curious. He says, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that it's wrong to say someone's beautiful? Is he saying that it's wrong to just acknowledge that someone is a beautiful person or an attractive person? So back to our question again. What's the difference between sinful lust and simply acknowledging someone's beauty? It is not wrong to acknowledge that someone is attractive to you or beautiful to you in your eyes. A guy can notice that a girl is beautiful and and not be lusting, right? It's not lust to say, hey, that girl's an attractive girl. It's not wrong to say that or not wrong to to acknowledge that. You know, when I met my wife, Courtney, I went into a, a, this, this place in Arlington. It was a delicatessen. It was a deli. And I walked in. And she was the one that took my order behind the cash register. And so I walked in, 
And this, this board is up ahead, up above. The menu is up above. And I'm having difficulty looking at the menu. And so she's standing there waiting to take my order. She's just standing there just waiting patiently. And I'm looking at the menu, and I'm going, so what do I want up here on this menu? Ooh. I know what I want. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, so, so basically, I'm sitting there kind of feeling like, I don't even know what I want from this menu board, but I know I want, I want to go out with her. Right? And so I think I said something like, okay, I'll have a club sandwich, chips, and one of you to go, please. Let's make this snappy, right? So, so here's the deal, though. I didn't have to study her or evaluate. I didn't have to pull out a notepad and be like, well, her eyes are just, they're just the perfect shade of green, or um, her, her forehead's a little bit bigger than I like, I think. Her nose, I'm not sure about the nose. There wasn't really studying evaluation. I didn't have to think about, is she attractive or not? I knew just in two seconds, yeah, she's attractive. No question about it. I was attracted. So is that wrong? Is that wrong to acknowledge that someone's beautiful? It's not. It's not wrong to acknowledge that. God wired us that way. God, here's the deal, ladies. Listen to this. God made guys visually wired. Now, that can go wrong real quick, and that can turn sinful real quick. But here's the godly part of that and what God's intent was for it. Because when it comes to both genders, one of the two needs to be the pursuer. One of the two has to notice the other one first. And so I think God made guys visually wired for that reason, so that they would look at her and go, okay, she's beautiful. I want to get to know her. I want to talk to her. And so this is why for you ladies, you typically have to have some other quality with the guy that you know about him before you even feel, because guys, we're not attractive, right? We're just not. And so this is why a lot of girls, listen, a lot of girls will say things like, when I first met that guy, I was not attracted at all. But once he started making me laugh, then I became attracted to him, right? And so guys typically have to be like, really, really funny, or have a lot of money, maybe. I don't know. I'm just saying. But, but so, there typically has to be some other quality that attracts the girl, and she has to get to know him first. Then she feels attracted sometimes. Now, I know there are exceptions. You got your little movie stars, and you're like, oh, that guy is so beautiful. Like, I know there's those guys out there, but that guy's not in this room, all right? And so, so, so one of the two genders, listen up, one of the two genders has to be drawn first and attracted first because God made men, listen, God made men to pursue and to pursue in a godly way. There's a godly way for this to happen and there's an ungodly way for it to happen. And so here's the question though. How do you know when you've crossed over into sinful lust? We're going to answer this question by going to Jesus. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles. Matthew 5, verse 27. i wait for you to get there. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And... 
Jesus is talking, so it's really, really, really important. Look at verse 27, starting out. And here's what Jesus says. He says, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Now, is there anybody that's going to argue with that? Right? No one's going to argue with that and say, No, no, I've heard it said that adultery is perfectly acceptable in our culture. I mean, there's not many cultures you can go to where they're going to say, yeah, we teach our young guys that it's great to cheat on their wives. No one's going to say that. So everyone has heard this said, that it's not right to cheat on someone else. Now, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is he saying? What is lustful intent? Here's what it is. It's when the, the acknowledgement of the beauty, and this is true for girls or for guys, it's when the acknowledgement of the beauty crosses the line and your mind starts rolling tape, to be really blunt with you. And your mind starts playing things out in your mind, and your mind starts rolling tape. That's lust. You have now crossed over from simple acknowledgement of beauty into sinful, lustful intent. Now, this might also raise some other questions with you. Lust is, when, lust is when you stop seeing her as a whole person made in God's image with a soul and a personality, and you just start seeing the body. You just start seeing body parts, to be really blunt with you. That's all you see. You don't see her as made in God's image. She's got a soul. She has character. She has a personality. She is a person. You see her as an object. That's when you've crossed over from acknowledgement of beauty into sinful lust. Look at the passage. It says, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, he's not saying here that, well, the response response should not be, well, I mean, I've already done it in my heart, so I might as well just go ahead and have sex with her, right? He's not saying that. He's not saying, I might as well go through with it because I've already sinned in my heart, so I might as well just, you know, go ahead. And here's the deal. Some of you guys buy this lie that culture feeds you, and it's this. If it's not sex, it's not sin. This verse kind of flies in the face of that, does it not? Some of you think that you can have these make-out sessions with your boyfriend or girlfriend, put your hands all over each other, and it's somehow not sin. Because, oh, we're in a committed relationship. No, you're not. There's no ring. And this is saying if you look at someone with lustful intent, it's like committing adultery in your heart. So take it a step further. If you're engaging with them in certain activities, then I'm guessing that's probably, you know, the same thing as what this would be, if not worse, lusting, right? You're not married to them. And so do not buy the cultural lie that says if it's not sex, it's not sin. This verse flies in the face of that. Look at verse 29. He says, this is where it gets really, really good. He says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. So he's serious. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. What in the world? Is he serious? Just just, just think about this. Imagine if we applied this 
literally. Imagine if, you know, you're in your room, on the computer, you stumble into pornography, and you feel convicted, so you pull away from the computer, and then you go to your Bible, and you read this passage, and you go, well, I've got to gouge out my eyes. And you stick your fingers in the back of your eyeballs, and you pop them out, and you get your finger in the other one, and you pop it out, and you've got eyeballs like hanging out of your head, and you're walking down the hallway, going like this, Mom, Dad, right? And your mom and dad are just like, ah! what is wrong with you? What did you do to yourself, right? And, and so you're like, well, I was, I was, I'm sorry. I was on the computer. I saw something I shouldn't have seen. And then I read this passage and I came and find my Bible because I'm blind right now. So what it says, it says that I'm supposed to gouge out my eyes and, and dad, can you cut off my arm? Because I can't even see it right now, right? And I mean, imagine if you applied this literally, what he's saying here. I mean, can he really be, I mean, think about this. If we all apply this literally, um, by the time you get to your wedding day, you would not be able to walk down the aisle. Like, you would roll down the aisle. Like, you would chin your way down the aisle. That would not be a joyous occasion for anyone. Okay, so, so he can't mean what it looks like he means her. He must mean something else. His goal for us is not to all just be one big disabled nub, right? That's not his intent for us, I don't think. So what does he mean by this? Here's what he's saying. He is saying that we should be willing to sacrifice even things of great value if they're leading us to sin. If something's leading you to sin, no matter what it is, you should be willing to sacrifice even something of great value if it's leading you into sin. You know, it almost seems like Jesus knew about the internet or something, right? It almost seems like he knew that was going to come down the pike and we'd struggle with that. And so here's the question for you. What, what is it of great value that you'd be willing to cut out of your life if it means staying pure? And not just things like internet, but relationships might need to be severed if it's causing you to stumble into impurity. Now, I've heard all excuses about why you must stay with someone or excuses about media and internet, but but I need the internet, I need TV. (laughs) Here's the deal. More than you need arms, legs, and eyes? I mean, he's pretty blunt in the passage. Okay, you need that stuff more than you need arms, legs, and eyes. And he just told us to cut off our members so we could be pure. But here's the weird part about this passage. You can do all of that. You can gouge out your eyes, cut off your arms, cut off your legs. But guess what you still have? It's your heart. And his whole point is that sin begins in the heart. His whole point is you can do all that and you still have your heart to deal with because that's where lust begins. It begins in the heart. And so one of the questions I often get from students is, okay, well, how far is too far? If you're in a relationship, how far, where's the line? How far is too far? You know, I had a coach in high school put me in my place with this question because I asked the question. I was in a relationship 
And I wanted to know. I said, how, how far is too far? And he said, well, you're asking the wrong question. It's the complete wrong question to ask. You've already lost if you're asking that question. And so look down with me back in chapter 6 of Proverbs, verses 27 to 28. Here's what, it'll, here's what it says. Chapter 6, verses 27 to 28. It says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on a hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So here's what you're doing. If you start doing anything physical right now in a relationship, you are going to get burned. Getting physical would be like carrying fire in your pockets and expecting it not to burn you. I mean, imagine someone actually doing this. They're going to go put hot coals in their pocket and wonder why their legs are burned. Doesn't make a lot of sense. That's what you're doing when you're getting physical in a relationship before you get married. I talked to a guy recently who said this. He said, I've committed to not even kiss until I get married. And I was like, wow, that is awesome. That is really, really cool. And I know as soon as, when I say those words, you think in your mind, what a loser. Like, what? who's going to do that? But let me ask you this question. How's that other plan working out? How's that other plan working out where, you know, people decide to um, make out when they're in high school and decide to uh, get physical in high school? How's that plan working out? Just, let's just compare the two ideas. How's that plan working out? And then secondly, what if Jesus, do you think Jesus responds to that guy who says, I want to wait till marriage to even kiss my wife? Do you think Jesus' response would be, come on, dude, that's a bit much. What do you think Jesus would say? He'd be like, hey, right on, man, that's awesome. That's great. And so I think you've got to understand that purity does not happen by accident. It requires a plan. You've got to have a plan. I always ask guys this question. If I know a guy who's in a relationship, I'll say, dude, tell me your plan. What's your plan to stay pure? Where will you not go with her to make sure you stay pure in this relationship? And for the girls, for you girls, if he doesn't lead in this area of your relationship, big red flag right there. Big red flag. I want to close for the sake of time just with this one quote. Then you'll do some more discussion here in a minute. But this is a quote by C.S. Lewis. And most of his quotes you read and you go, that's awesome. Now, what does it mean? And this is just like that one. So, aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. Here's what he's saying. He is saying something like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What he's saying is that you worry about your relationship with Jesus. You aim at heaven. Because what happens when you aim at heaven, when you aim at Jesus, then everything else gets thrown in. The blessings God intended for you to have in a relationship get added to you. It's the person who aims at earth, who aims at the quick fix, who aims at the physical relationship in the here and now. It's that person who's aiming at earth who misses out on both. Make sense? I want you to discuss for a few minutes your last few questions when you're done closing prayer at your tables.